Okay. Uh, good. Uh, good morning. Good. Uh, good. Good. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this last Trinity Research uh, in Social Science uh, webinar on the consequences of uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, today we're going to be talking about um, the implications of COVID nineteen and maybe implication of the confinement and social distancing on uh, retailing. Um, I'm going to introduce the guest in one second, uh, just to let you know that like uh, this session is recorded uh, live. Uh, we have uh, muted the participant, but uh, you are more than welcome to ask questions via the Q&A um, uh, box if you want, and I will write them down and, uh, and, uh, and pass on your questions to, uh, to our panel. Um, so COVID-19 is, is a tragedy. Um, we all know that. I think we've heard uh, quite a lot about it over the last few months. Um, to mitigate the effect of this tragedy, governments have first uh, confined the population and now uh, there are new rules with regard to social distancing. Obviously, those measures have been uh, successful in, in um, mitigating the effect of the disease, but they are also creating another uh, tragedy uh, for many industries, and uh, particularly the one depending or facilitating consumer mobility, such as airline, tourism, the car industry, but of course uh, also, and that's the topic of today, retailing. Um, uh, so food retail is maybe doing uh, doing okay. Non-food, uh, clothes, rest, uh, luxury retail, not so well. Uh, with estimate varying from uh, minus 40% to, to 90% on a year-on-year -year basis, depending uh, for the month of April, uh, depending on where you were in Europe and which region uh, within Europe. So this is going to be a, a massive uh, uh, crisis. Of course, we know that innovation uh, uh, may trigger some uh, destruction, but in this case, uh, maybe it's destruction that is coming first, and we will see uh, eventually uh, how and if it will lead to innovation. So to discuss uh, those questions about the future of retail and the impact of the crisis, uh, we have three uh, great uh, guest speakers and I'm, I'm grateful that they've accepted to come and, and share their expertise with us today. Uh, first, we have Jonathan Reynolds from the University of Oxford. Uh, then we have Devon Hughes, uh, we will talk about food uh, sector and innovation opportunities, is the CEO and founder of Buy Me. Um, and then we have uh, Sinead Roden from Trinity Business School, uh, who will uh, explain the consequences of this crisis and the supply chain implication. Uh, before I introduce our first speaker, Jonathan, in more detail, I just wanted to uh, let you know of found out was that when we mapped their uh, process was that there was a lot of touch points and some of those touch points were more critical than other touch point is moment of interaction between the service provider and the citizen or the consumer and um, 
And obviously, when there were too many touch points and when there were negative touch points, the overall experience was tainted. Now that we have social distancing, uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, issues around those touch points, and maybe e-commerce and, and digital touch points is going to be a point of discussion. Um, I'd like to ask a few questions to our first speakers uh, that relate to this notion of experience and touch point, and I'm sure it will, it will come back on this. Uh, so, but first I'll, I'll turn to uh, uh, Professor Jonathan Reynolds, who is the leading expert uh, in uh, the study of uh, the retail sector interna internationally, or one of the leading uh, academic in, in the area. He's published uh, numerous articles on the topic and also uh, a book that is a, a, a reference in, in the domain. He's an associate prof in retail marketing and deputy dean of Said Business School in the University of Oxford and is the founding member and the director of the Oxford Institute of Retail uh, Management. So um, I would like to ask you, Jonathan, um, more broadly speaking, what do you think is the future of retail? And more specifically, and I know you, you have a few points that you'd like to uh, talk to, uh, to um, more specifically, what do you think of this notion of experience and how experience is going to be affected in the future uh, through, um, through this reshuffle uh, of, of the customer habit uh, thanks to COVID-19. So, uh, Jonathan, if you want to uh, let us know your thought on this initial question. Thank you, Laurent. Good, good morning, everybody. It's great to be part of this, uh, this webinar and, and great to work with you on uh, thinking through this really uh, complex and challenging issue. The sector, I think, uh, has seen more change in the last three months than perhaps the last three decades, you know, in terms of the impact on uh, on, on uh, non-food retailing in particular. I think food, as you suggested, has done reasonably well. I want to focus my comments particularly on, on discretionary spending, uh, because I know we, we're going to have some contributions, particularly focusing on, on food retail. And um, uh, it, it's great to know, for example, that in, in Ireland, I think hairdressing is opening today, which is uh, uh, good for many of us, not, not for you, Laurent, I suspect, but uh, for many of us. Um, uh, and uh, we've seen a gradual release of lockdown in many countries worldwide, um, some perhaps premature, some, some less so. What I've got are a few comments on, on four themes that I'd like to um, explore with you, and I'll just, uh, if I may, just share my, my screen. And... Uh, what, I, what I'd like to do really is to, to focus on, uh, on four uh, broad themes. First, the, the early evidence. What, what can we see around us at the moment that suggests either good or bad news as far as um, uh, the recovery of the sector is concerned? Uh, secondly, around experience, as, you, as you've mentioned, you know, the, the evolving nature of touch points in the retail sector is, is really very interesting at the moment. Um, how tolerant will consumers be of these new forms of mitigation that are being imposed on them? Uh, queuing, uh, social distancing, and so on. Will it, will it spoil, will it destroy, will it erode the advantages that uh, many retailers have built up in terms of creating um, an experience? Thirdly, I'm a geographer by background, and, and actually um, I can't resist uh, talking about location. That's my third point, which is really that I think we're going to see some very different winners and losers in terms of locations, both um, at the national level, but also at the, the sub-regional and city level uh, around different marketplaces. And then fourthly, we have to conclude really with some comments on the economics of all this, the context, the economic context, for example, in the UK, where we may have two and a half, three million people unemployed, and certainly significant pressure on m m many of the rest of us in terms of uh, 
uh, our willingness to spend uh, uh, through any retailers, whether those are offline or, or online. So those are the four themes I wanted to talk about in the next, next 10 minutes or so. And perhaps the place to start is, of course, we're at very, very early days on this. I know you're in, was it phase 1B or 2B in terms of the relief, release from confinement in Ireland? We're uh, at about stage 53, I think, in the UK. It's all very confusing. We're not quite sure where we are. Um, but what this chart shows, I think, is the, the gradual kind of uh, um, uh, move from uh, lockdown situation uh, at the end of March in, in three economies, Ireland, the UK and the US, and how those have gradually recovered, but only gradually. And even by the end of June, we look at Ireland and the UK and we see, for example, um, on, only a, a sort of 40 percentage point recovery to, to where we were before the lockdown. Uh, the US a little different because, of course, we know from the US experience that perhaps lockdown has been released prematurely in some of those kinds of markets. And this kind of suggests to us that this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint in terms of recovery, I think. Uh, um, and yet, when we look at what's happening elsewhere in the world, we look, for example, at China, which, of course, experienced the early uh, kind of impact of, of, of the pandemic. What's happened in retailing in China? Uh, and we see some quite interesting things. So, for example, Hermes was reporting uh, its first day post lockdown, Hermes in Guangzhou, uh, sold nearly $3 million worth of goods in one day, broke all records. So, there's this, this sense of a kind of uh, a pent up demand in the system for discretionary spending, where we've seen a kind of revenge shopping, as it's been called, where uh, people are just desperate to get out of the house and uh, rush along and, uh, and, and want to buy, buy things. Yeah, that's not everybody. So it's only a proportion of people we see doing this. Um, and when we look at some of the data on this uh, worldwide, you know, the fear of catching the virus still is pretty high. In the UK, it's about 45% uh, are worried about catching this, this virus still. In China, it's 60%. Uh, in Germany, about 35%. So there's a significant portion of people that are still pretty anxious about, about getting out and about. And that's often demographic. It's kind of uh, older people, perhaps families, um, and so we're seeing on the streets, uh, younger people, um, perhaps those who are desperate to get out of lockdown. So we're seeing a very different kind of return to normality, a very incremental return to normality in terms of um, uh, uh, the early evidence. And people avoiding crowded places, something like 70% in the UK saying they want to avoid crowded places and they would count a shopping mall or a, you know, a large store as, as a crowded place from that point of view. So the second theme is really, you know, what kind of experience lies in store for people when they do emerge from lockdown? Um, and uh, you know, the worrying thing is it could be like this. This is Ikea in Warrington in the UK, which uh, when it first opened a couple of weeks ago, was uh, looking at a, a three hour queue of people who'd started queuing from 5.30 in the morning. And going back, Laurent, to your, your point about touch points, you know, uh, you don't even get into the store uh, uh, for about three hours uh, for your first touch point. Uh, so there's a lot to be done in some senses to try and understand why people are queuing, what can make their queuing lives easier. Are they going to be queuing for, for forever um, or, or will the novelty wear off after a, a certain period of time? So this kind of notion of um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the sort of interim period.
percentage point increase in online penetration of retail sales over the last uh, uh, couple of months. We're now looking at 33% in May of all retail sales were online in the UK. You know, that's a mix of food and, and non-food. Um, but the question is, is the online experience any better? And certainly when I tried, I looked at this headline for B&Q and I thought to myself, I don't want to go there. I'll buy my home improvement things online because I'm doing lots of DIY jobs around the house. I went to the B&Q website and I found this. You've joined our virtual queue. Uh, your estimated wait time is more than an hour to get to the website um, while we're working on safely reopening our store. And once you get to the front of the online queue, you have 10 minutes to get into the virtual store, but you can stay as long as you like, which is very reassuring. So, so, so online is not all it's cut out to be in terms of uh, the user experience. And uh, we can see that, you know, not just through online queues, but the difficulty of getting booking slots for, for deliveries, um, uh, for food and groceries in particular, and, and then slower deliveries as warehouses and distribution centers are having to uh, put in place social distancing guidelines, which is slowing down some of their, their supply chain. Still, many will have become used to that online experience, I think, and will uh, be trying to uh, make the most of it during that time, and will be taking away from you know, the, the, the store-based customers. Third theme is around uh, location, and uh, the impact on location, I think, is really, really interesting. Um, you know, recover can be, recovery can be measured locally. So this is some work done by a, 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 a spatial data business called Ge Geolytics in the UK. They're tracking mobile phone data, looking at, at footfall through mobile phone data, for particular locations in the UK, and they're discovering a number of things. They're discovering that the recovery, for example, here in Leeds, is, is actually, actually been quite good. But somewhere like London or around transport hubs has been much less so. So it's going to be a very uh, a patchy recovery in terms of particular locations. And whereas places like London and big metropolises have had a big, big impact in terms of uh, the lack of recovery, what we're seeing, of course, is the local uh, businesses and the local economy has benefited from the period of lockdown and confinement. And again, if I look at some UK data on this, convenience store sales up 17% as, as shoppers go ultra local. Um, and you know, that's partly because of necessity. And in Ireland, I think you were limited to traveling you know, more than 20 kilometers from home. Uh, it's been less constraining in the UK, but even so, uh, people have been shopping locally at their, their convenience stores, at their, uh, their, their, their local markets and, and, and so on. Um, and indeed taking advantage of, uh, of, of sort of de delivery services as well. Um, how long you know, will these behaviours sustain themselves once stores reopen? Or, or will uh, we find that people uh, will actually get used again to travelling long distances to go, to go uh, non-food shopping? Um, certainly uh, the evidence seems to suggest that uh, uh, customers claim they're going to remain loyal to, to local stores. Um, Working from home may change the way in which we shop anyway. So if we're working from home more often, we may still uh, shop locally, many of the things that we want or use online. And then we start to see changes in real estate as well, which may mean that perhaps you know, the city centre locations, which were so great for uh, office-based shopping trips, are perhaps uh, uh, less attractive for um, the, uh, the customer these days, because actually it's a significantly more anxiety-inducing experience to get on the underground or to get on the bus uh, with your face mask on uh, and so on to, to go to um, uh, a non-food outlet in, in a big city centre. So we're going to start to see some, some big changes there I think as well as some of these uh, forces work their way through. And the final um, theme I wanted to talk about was uh, was economics because that of course is really the driver of, of the, 
the demand we're likely to see in the short, medium and, and long term. And I mentioned, uh, you know, potentially in the UK, 2.8 million, 3 million unemployed. In the, in the US, we've seen phenomenal numbers of individuals registering uh, unemployed over the last uh, couple of months. That, is that going to be a, you know, a V-shape or a U-shape or an L-shape recovery? And that will affect, of course, the level of demand for, uh, for, for retail goods and services. And you know, the big story in the UK over the weekend was uh, the collapse of administration of Intu, one of our biggest uh, shopping centre managers uh, uh, with um, 4.6 billion in debt. Uh, running around about uh, 17 uh, uh, quite big shopping centres across the UK. And uh, those centres themselves employ around 130,000 people. So there are some big economic uh, uh, forces working their way through the system at the moment. And it's still early days to see whether it's really just, if you like, the zombies that were already the walking wounded when they walked into the pandemic, simply failing sooner than they might have done otherwise, or whether these are more secular kinds of changes in terms of the, the viability of certain types of retail activity. Into arguably was already in difficulty before it hit the pandemic and really this is an accident to some extent waiting to happen but uh, certainly the impact of this in terms of 17 big shopping malls in the UK could be quite significant. So who are the winners out of this? Well people often say well Amazon is a winner. Well Amazon may well be a winner but not necessarily a, a profitable one. I mean, Amazon spent, I think, $4 billion in the last quarter in, in terms of increased costs in safeguarding its warehouses and uh, uh, um, uh, allowing itself to scale up its operations to deliver to the new levels of demand it was experiencing worldwide. Um, and certainly its share price responded accordingly. But how sustainable is, is, that, is that cost base in the longer run? And can it lead to more profitable trading, even for a business like, like, like Amazon? Uh, and then we look at things like sustainability taxes and uh, e-commerce taxes that are being talked about. So it seems there may not be a, a lot of winners out of this whole process, other than those that are really creative and innovating uh, extensively, um, uh, as, as we'll hear in a few moments. And my final slide really is just to remind us that this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. If you look at the potential impact on the economy over the next uh, year or so, this data comes from OECD and is looking at GDP change by country. Uh, that we can see, for example, Ireland, uh, about, um, where are we, about uh, two-thirds of the way along, looking like around about an 8% fall in GDP, but the UK going down as low as 12% in terms of um, next year, and that's provided there isn't a, an, another spike in, uh, in infections later this year, which take, would take economies down even further, according to that chart. So forgive me for ending on a bit of a gloomy note, but it seems to me that um, you know, we are in for a really long haul of recovery out of this. This is going to certainly favour firms that are creative, adaptable, uh, and to some extent have, have deep pockets uh, or an agile strategy uh, to, to, to meet the demands of the next year or two years in the retail marketplace. So I hope those comments help initially. No, thanks. thanks a lot, Jonathan. That, that, was, uh, that was very insightful. And before I move to... Um, to Devon, maybe for uh, for for the follow up, uh, I'd like to ask you maybe one quick uh, question. Mm. It, and it relates to the notion of of uh, location that you have uh, mentioned, and also the the, the loser and, we, and winner. And but let me summarize what I got from your presentation, and tell me if I got it right or, or wrong. So you see, amongst the winner, the local convenience shop have been clearly the winner. Uh, of course.
and how the food industry and your particular company have been impacted by uh, this uh, crisis as a, as a way of example. So Devon, I'm going to let you uh, take over. Thanks so much, Laurel, and I really appreciate you guys having me on uh, today. So, um, yeah, so I, just, I, you know, this is such an interesting period, um, and there's there's such a a unique mix of impacts I think that we're seeing off the back of COVID, and I think you know, grocery and, and food retail is is in in such a unique position. And what I wanted, I suppose, to do today is to really take an opportunity to to share a slightly more macro view of what's happening within within grocery within FMCG, because you know, although all of a sudden it's it's a very hot topic now and um, particularly over the last three months you know grocery retail has been going through a significant period of flux uh, for the past four or five years um, I'll give it a little bit of background on myself um, I'm here with some very esteemed um, individuals so I might give a little bit of background on my on my, on my own experience um, you know my, my background is not primarily technology or, or even grocery I spent the vast majority of my career working in the energy markets which was working with large, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers, retailers to, you know, understand, analyze macro market movements uh, and and hedge develop develop hedging strategies and trading strategies that would help them avoid uh, the impact of you know geopolitical movements that would impact the cost of energy, and. You know, in 2014, I was getting the itch to start another business. Um, Buy Me is my fifth business, so I've had four spectacular failures that have got me into this mess. Um, and I stumbled upon a commodity market I'd never really seen before, or never, or at least never really appreciated, I suppose. Um, and that was the grocery e-commerce market. You know, so to give it a little bit of framing, you know, grocery e-commerce in 2014, when I first started looking at the space, was worth nine billion pounds just in Ireland and the UK alone. I mean, there are not many markets of that size. The residential electricity market, for example, is 13 billion. Um, but what I understood immediately, and maybe to, to give a little bit of context as to, to what's happening in the space, because obviously online within grocery is becoming a massive channel and it's been greatly accelerated in the past three months. But one of the key things that not many people understand um, is that grocery online is deeply unprofitable. Um, and it has been burning cash for the best part of 20 years. Um, and so in 2014, when I came across you know, this market, I, I recognized that there was, this, there was a massive hole um, that really was being heavily subsidized by the retail market. Um, and so you know, out of a nine billion pound market, you were losing 300 million pounds a year as an aggregate. Ultimately, talk, you're ultimately looking at a dysfunctional market. But at that time, it was a very small portion and, and subsidization is, is very common in, in markets. You know, Gas, for example, is a subsidized market. But when I looked at the long-term demand curve for online grocery, um, without COVID, it was already set to double to 22 billion pounds within just 10 years. Um, the fact that it was already heavily loss-making, you know, gave me a, I suppose I, I put my free market economist hat on and, and thought, well, if you have a rapidly expanding market and heavily compounding losses and a very short window of time, it's very likely that this market is going to experience a significant correction, a disruption, uh, of some sort, and that will be driven by the market because the market just will not tolerate these levels of inefficiencies. So I really got quite excited about this and thought that this might be a very cool place to be for the next decade or two of my career. Um, and, I, and that year I left the energy markets and I went, decided to, to kind of embark on this journey. Um, so I'll give it a little bit of context on what Buy Me is in the context of, 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 of the service and the business that we are. 
Ultimately, Buy Me is a free to download app across iOS and Android, and we allow users to order grocery and household items from large retail partners like Lidl and Tesco today, and have their items delivered store to door in as little as an hour by their very own personal shopper. We charge a commission, we charge a delivery fee, and we're about 20 to 30% cheaper than visiting a traditional convenience store. Um, and we're 12 hours faster than your next day traditional delivery services that have been around for you know, the best part of 20 years. Um, the way in which we work is quite unique because as, as Laurent um, indicated, we don't own any vans, we don't hold any stock, we have no warehouses. You know, a lot of people think of us as a delivery company, but in fact, we're actually a data science company and we are a platform, pure and simple. And what that means is that when a customer downloads the app, you know, we provide the infrastructure for, to collect the data of their order. And they choose a store that they want to shop in, they fill the basket with the items that they want, and then they place the order into the platform. At that point, that order is fed into Jarvis. Uh, for anyone who's a Marvel nerd like we are, uh, Jarvis is our, essentially our core IP. It's a high-frequency optimization algorithm um, that essentially monitors all the real-time variables of the grocery retail market at any given time. And when I say variables, what I mean is, you know, how many items are in a customer's order? Where is that customer located? Uh, what are the stores within that region? What's on-shelf availability like? Traffic conditions, weather conditions. How many shoppers are available on the network and where, will they, where are they predicted to be at any given time throughout the day? And so when the order comes in, Jarvis will analyze the order, bundle it with orders of a similar characteristics, and then send that to an independent personal shopper. So this is Marta. Marta is available. She's told Jarvis a week in advance. She's booked a session on the platform. So Jarvis knows where and when she's going to be available. She receives the bundle, accepts it, and then is routed to the very best retail location to fill that order from. So the customer doesn't choose the retail location. Jarvis will actually choose the, the location based on things like chill chain and, uh, and logistical uh, proximity. So Marta arrives in store. She will use a shopper app, which is a complementary uh, interface and that allows her to view the data that the customer has, has compiled in their order. She'll pick, pack and prepare the items on behalf of the customer. If there's anything out of stock and they don't have any fill at stake, she'll ring the customer um, to say that they don't have it and, and manage those expectations and also find the very best substitution for the shopper for the customer at that time. She'll then pay for the items like a normal customer would at checkout using a prepaid card, which Jarvis has preloaded with capital or cash rather, uh, to be able to purchase that order on behalf of the customer. So it's a completely cashless system. We facilitate the transfer of two things, data flow and cash flow between two stakeholders in the market, personal shopper and customer. At that point, she leaves the store and Jarvis will route her again via the most optimized logistics route uh, to deliver those orders on behalf of, her, on behalf of those customers. And so that gives you a little bit of a flavor of what we are as a business. We're a pure platform. Um, and really the mission for us as a business has, has been to recognize that actually the distribution model used by traditional online grocery is not fit for purpose. And many of you might ask, why is it losing 300 million pounds a year? Um, and I can tell you that it's actually much more than that now because the online grocery market has, has exploded to over 16 and a half billion pounds in the last three years. Um, and the reason being is that actually for some reason or another, the retail industry decided to adopt a vertically integrated linear distribution model. And they all built their own individual networks, the Tesco network, the Sainsbury's network, 
Now, for anyone who understands commodity distribution, you understand that shared infrastructure, decentralized networks is a fundamental. That's why we have one gas network. That's why we have one electricity network. Um, and so the reason you do that is because it would be prohibitively expensive to have heat and power in our homes and businesses if we didn't all share the cost uh, of that infrastructure. And so what Buy Me is, is that shared infrastructure for multiple retailers uh, to, to manage the distribution, digital infrastructure required and the logistics network to be able to provide same day delivery. And so why, you know, why is this happening? Why are we in this space? And you know, to try and take it back a little bit, again, a slightly bigger view of what's happening at an economic level, uh, which Dr. Reynolds you know, really talked quite interestingly about there, is that you know, we, over the last 15 years, have experienced a global shift in the way economic activity is managed. We have moved from an organizational economy of the 20th century uh, which was developed you know, in the Industrial Revolution when, with the first emergence of our what we know now as corporates. Um, and we have shifted to a market-based peer-to-peer economy um, for the 21st century. So an organizational economy relies on large corporations to manage and mediate economic activity, both labor and, 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 and transaction flow. But with technology, with the level of connectivity, and with the rise of platform, we now have data-driven platform sitting above almost every single vertical in every single industry globally. And what I mean by that is that you have a platform that sits above the market, not in the market. And it soaks up local economic information at a rate that's never been done before through the use of these supercomputers that are sitting in our pockets. All of this transactional and economic data is generated, processed in a high frequency fashion, mostly by algorithms, and which removes friction, allows stakeholders to connect and transact in a way that they've never done before. And you can see this happening across every single uh, industry and market uh, that you might operate on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's, that's quite important to understand because that is a fundamental change in the way our economic models work, the way our, 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 our markets operate. Um, and that, that's also quite important to bear in mind because platform economics, something that's not quite often talked about, is fundamentally different to what we understand as traditional linear economics. Um, and so one example of this is uh, there's a terrific book called Modern Monopolies, How to Dominate the 21st Century, um, by the founder of one of the largest app development platforms in, in the US called Applico. And one of the most interesting um, insights from that is that if you look at the S&P 500 today, um, in, in 2020, you'll see that um, uh, the total percentage of platform companies in the S&P 500 represent just 4%, but 13% of the total income generated by the S&P 500 is relevant to those 4%. And when you extrapolate that out by 2040, we're looking at roughly 14% of the S&P 500 being platform technology companies, but 50% of total income generated being coming from that 14%. This is, this is a, a fascinating uh, trend to really think about what that means for the way in which our markets are going to continue to operate. And this is happening right with, you know, the, the funny thing about this is that it's not happening at a linear pace. This is happening at an exponential pace. You can see this happening in real time, you know, and this is the perfect example of it. If you want to understand the difference between a platform business and a traditional corporate linear retail environment, you just look at Amazon and compare it to Walmart. The, the growth that Amazon has seen over the last 10 years is exponential. And that's not by accident. It's because of the, in, it's because of the benefits that platform economics has. They sit above their markets, not within it. And if you think of grocery, for example, a perfect example of this is the grocery market, total market size, and this is all channels combined. And bearing in mind that the top three fastest growing channels in this sector are in the order of, 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 of uh, fastest growing, 
online, discount, and convenience. All three of those channels will be exacerbated by COVID. No question, online, if there's a recession, discount, and we can already see that local convenience stores have seen a significant uplift. So what was already a very fast growing three sectors of the market has just been, has just been accelerated even more so now. Um, and if you look at the, the total market, and the way I would frame this is that if you look at the total market size, it's 250 billion-ish of total spend in grocery. The largest player, Ireland, UK, Europe, Tesco. Their market cap, 23 billion pounds, I think, at last count. And now they're going head-to-head with, in their fastest-growing channel online with a trillion-dollar company that's four times the size of their entire marketplace. It's not even a competitive conversation. And what we saw three years ago was a catalyst event. And if I was to ever say, if you wanted me to point to where, destroy, where the correction began for grocery online, I would point to the Amazon Whole Foods acquisition because that was, the very, that was a catalyst event. Um, you overnight had one of the largest platforms become one of the largest grocers uh, in the US market. And this really fundamentally shifted the trajectory of the market and it, it triggered a behavior pattern within the retail space, which is still continuing today. Um, just six months later, Amazon, or sorry, uh, Alibaba invested $3 billion in Asia's largest supermarket chain. This is not a coincidence. Seeing these large, you know, the large, some of the largest businesses we've ever seen in our, in our gen- in generation, in a lifetime, moving into this vertical uh, is in, in, in such unison is, is not a surprise. Um, but what we did see was retail starting to react. Um, and we saw Target acquire a shared infrastructure platform, very similar to Buy Me, called Shift. Uh, for 550 million. And this was, again, retail trying to uh, fight platform with platform, recognizing that the the ability to scale, the growth potential that platform provides uh, um, on top of the likes of a linear business uh, and more traditional retail um, provides that competitive edge required to really win in this space. And then we were approached by the largest grocer in Europe, uh, Little, owned by the Schwartz Group, in um, April of 2018. Um, And by the end of 2018, we became the first independent e-commerce platform to take the largest retailer uh, and the discount channel online same day for the very first time. Um, And this is again, quite a fundamental impact because not only was discount the second fastest growing channel in in the sector, now it's online, now it's same day. Um, and these are all compounding and, and creating uh, even more pressures on the, on the retail market, as we know. And then looking at COVID, you know, what we've seen is that 69% of people have actually gone to a shop and just turned around because the queue has been too long. I think every single one of us on this call has probably been in that experience. And um, 57% have intentionally shopped at local stores, which you know, speaks to, again, to Dr. Reynolds' um, points. Um, 43% have bought a different brand. And again, we'll all have remember that the, the availability of product on shelf, um, particularly in the early weeks of, of, of the COVID outbreak, um, we saw significant challenges within supply chain. And um, 42% have shopped online because they don't want to queue. I think that's a, a trend that we'll continue to see. And 41% have intentionally bought Irish products, which I think, again, these types of you know, environments start to, to drive you know, kind of a national consideration of what we can do for our local businesses. Looking post-COVID, what's going to happen now that, you know, now that we understand that the new normal, the new world that we're living in, well, that 59% will continue to shop online like they've done during the pandemic. And again, if you think about what's happened here is that you already had a, a fast growing channel, 
you know, we've thrown an accelerant on it, which is COVID. And we've now accelerated, you know, probably three, four, maybe five years worth of consumers into this channel to try it um, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a condensed period of time. That, again, is going to really fundamentally shape the trajectory of the market going forward. 40%, 48% will um, save because of uncertainty. And then again, this, I think this is a, a key area that I think everyone is, is mindful of. 40% will, 47% will buy uh, more bulk items. You know, we have definitely seen, we saw a large, sharp increase in basket size um, in, the, in the early weeks of COVID. We have seen it relax a little bit, but it's still a much larger basket overall um, as people shop more. And, and remembering that grocery has more or less been a beneficiary. You know, as, as the hospitality and services sectors have suffered, you know, grocery has really absorbed all of that spend as people still need to feed themselves for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and 34% will be uh, one of the first back to their favorite restaurants. Again, a lot of people not feeling very comfortable with the idea of going to a pub or a restaurant um, just at this, at this moment. And, and, and only 30% will, will really stop worrying about the virus uh, going forward. Um, and then finally, you know, 87% agree that they will buy more from local shops, which again, we've touched on earlier on. Um, there will continue to be an investment in local products, um, which I think is, you know, again, something that you'll see at a, at a global level within all various markets. Um, and 82% of, uh, continue to pay more by card and cash. So again, this has probably accelerated the cashless environment. Uh, I'm glad that you know, our infrastructure actually provides for that from, from the get-go. Um, 79% will continue to be very cautious. I think masks are going to become a thing of, of common nature. Um, <clears throat> and then local holidays will continue to be a, a big part of that. Happy to answer any questions that you might have, Laurent. Yeah, thank you, Devon. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to move on uh, relatively quickly because uh, I, I want to leave some time to uh, Sinead there and also for a uh, question and answer at the end. If you have any questions, I'm talking to the audience, uh, please fire through the uh, question and answer uh, box and I will ask them at the end. Very quickly, just for you, I mean, it uh, seems to me that you're in the perfect spot because, uh, you know, essentially uh, your convenience uh, store because you can deliver in less than one an hour. So the you know the the the, the proximity of your app, if you want, is just uh, just as good as the proximity of a local shop. Um, uh, you do that like at a cheaper price because you partner with the likes of Lidl, which is like the discounter, and 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 you do this online, and and those are precisely the three sectors that you have mentioned that will benefit or have benefited in the last few years of this uh, change in consumer habit accelerated by uh, COVID. So without telling us, because I know you're expanding to the UK, but like without telling us uh, too much about your company, how well have you been doing over the last uh, couple of uh, weeks? I mean, we need some positive news. Hopefully you can tell us like, you know, your pockets are, are full of uh, uh, cash. Um, I think it's, it's you know, as a, as, a, as a period, I think it's unforgettable. And um, right. you know, I feel very fortunate that, you know, we're in the sector that we're in, and because as, a, as an early stage startup, you know, an event like this, um, so unexpected, can and and given the delicate nature of startups, you know, this this type of event really has probably wiped a huge amount of innovation businesses just completely off the map. And you know, we feel very grateful that we're we're in in the position that we're in, but also not without challenge. Um, you know, the sharp spike we saw a three hundred percent increase in in volume um, through through Q one, and um, we were trading ten months ahead of our own business plan for twenty twenty. Um, and, and what that meant was that we had, to, we had to really completely revisit what our expectations were for the year. Um, we had to completely restructure our, our funding strategy, and our commercial strategy for the year. Um, and we were very, you know, 
I think in a very positive opportunity because we've built up a very strong network and, and recognition within the market. All of the work that we did last year was all about scale. You know, how do we get our, our platform to scale with demand because we were working with large enterprise retailers. Um, and when COVID happened, all of that work really took on what I would call probably a higher meaning and um, because we, we overnight became an essential service. Um, you know, we were very lucky that, you know, off the back of that and, and with the performance that we've, we'd already had in the year, we grew our, our volume, weekly volume, 2000% in 2019. And we were able to close 8 million in new capital uh, in Q1 of this year. Um, you know, two, across two rounds, one led by ACT Ventures, which is, you know, a very well-known venture capital firm in Ireland. And then a, lar a larger round was actually led by the Wheat Chief Group, uh, which is the um, sustainability, agri and food uh, investment fund of uh, the Duke of Westminster's um, family estate, the, the Grosvenor estate. Um, and so with that, we, you know, we found ourselves in a very good position to have, you know, the right backers, the right supporters, you know, that we'd be able to bring the business forward and, and really, you know, again, try to rise to the rise yeah. to the occasion. Okay. Okay. Well, it sounds to me that uh, you are describing something that, you know, was somehow of a success, but I, I can imagine that uh, from the exponential, like more than exp yeah, exponential growth that you've experienced over the last months, you had encountered uh, some type of uh, logistical uh, issue uh, in terms of like managing this growth. And that brings me to our last uh, speaker, uh, Sinead, because Sinead is an associate professor here in Trinity Business School um, and um, she's a specialist in, in supply chain management. And she actually specialized as well in this notion of crisis uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, in, in for, for supply chain. So uh, as Devon has illustrated, you know, there's many types of crises. Crises can be due to an overwhelmingly um, big success, or uh, on the contrary, it could be because your supply chain is broken. So I'd like to ask you your views, Sinead, about like how, how do you think this crisis has affected supply chain for, for, for retailer, how bad or how good it has been in a, in a very broad sense? Yeah, thanks, Laurent, and, and thanks, Devon and Jonathan, for, for two very interesting uh, perspectives there. Uh, yeah, so I, I think I, I just want to spend uh, the next uh, 10 minutes or so just, just speaking exactly to that. The impact of this crisis um, on, on supply chain, so very much looking at the supply, supply side of things. And I think, you know, to pick up on, on one of Jonathan's analogies that, you know, this, our recovery is going to be very much a marathon and not a sprint. I absolutely agree, um, but I think it needs to be a new race um, from a supply chain point of view. We can't, uh, we can't, uh, you know, go back to the, the mistakes and the errors of the past. Um, so I, I think uh, at this juncture, let me just uh, share screen. So we should be sharing now. Yeah, so I, I think the way I like to, to think about COVID and position it from a supply chain point of view is that it, it is surely a, a black swan event. You know, something that has happened that, that wasn't predictable, um, but has had a huge impact. And, and we've seen that supply chain and, and the narrative around supply chains are now day-to-day -day parlance for most of us. Um, you know, we're, we're no stranger to these types of events and the impact they've had on supply chains, the financial crisis so massively reduced demand, the Japanese, the, the Japanese tsunamis, the Thai floods have massively impacted our, our supply chains, particularly, you know, the, the tech supply chains. COVID-19, however, has been so catastrophic because it's affected both demand and supply um, and has had a global impact. 
from a retail point of view, uh, it has we we we've, we know that that retail supply chains just went, weren't engineered to cope with this level of disruption. From stores to the logistics systems to the distribution networks, supplier networks, supplier relationships, they just weren't set up to allow the agility of response that was needed. Um, and we saw retailers up and down the country uh, reactively respond to, to gear up every aspect of their supply chain and delivery systems from procurement right through to customer service in order to respond. We're, we're still very much in, in the midst of, of the pandemic and we don't, we don't yet know exactly the, the, the exact effect on, on supply chains. There's just not enough data there. Um, at the minute, but you know, one thing that we we can be sure of is that we need to change moving forward. Um, we need to run that different race. We need to to lay a different path. Um, we need to think about crafting much more resilient systems, much more resilient operations uh, and supply chains that support our retail systems, uh, because they just didn't have the resilience that they needed. Um, you know, we, we might question as well how, you know, why were we not ready? Um, we know uh, that, that these types of disruptions, call them high impact, low probability, if you like, these types of disruptive events have been on the rise. They are becoming more frequent and they are becoming more impactful. So we should have been forewarned. There has been lots of discussion in the supply chain literature, and you know it's it's part of my it's part of my area looking at risk response and, and development of resilience. But in practice, we're just not good at at delivering on what we on what we know is as best practice, uh, and we 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 have designed supply chains that that are vulnerable um, for very many reasons. Um, we look at much more complex, uh, distended, geographically dispersed supply chains, much more modularity, uh, increasing number of handoffs between uh, you know, different part suppliers. We're running much more le much leaner systems. We're running on zero inventory often. Um, we're focusing on cost. You know, the focus on cost, ignoring the, the other, um, you know, the, the cost below the surface, if you like, we're focusing on, on purchase prices, the tip of the iceberg and, and forgetting how else we can leverage procurement effectively to drive real value. We're focusing on sole sourcing, you know, having our key strategic, uh, our key strategic parts or, or products, our key services, Delivered just by uh, a sole supplier is is just fraught with difficulty, and you know we we see um, Apple, for example, fell fell file of this. Um, you know the the coronavirus outbreak exposed so much of their dependency on China, and from a risk point of view, we talk about about transparency, about visibility into our supply chains, but the practice in practice we. The majority of companies have no idea what their risk exposure is and, and specifically for, for Asia. We don't know how, how badly we are exposed. Um, these are all issues. These are problems. And we've known this. We know that, that uh, we, we should be changing and adapting. But coronavirus strikes and these factors and others have meant that we've suffered so catastrophically. The weak links become ever more exposed whenever you have such areas of vulnerability. We have absolutely buried our head in the sand on this. Um, we should know better. Supply chain best practice is, is anything but the aforementioned. When we look at the, the dependence that we, we place across sectors, across industries on, on, quarantine, on, on quarantine areas, you can see just the, the impact there of China and you know, the reality that, that China has affected every single supply chain um, that we touch. 
So coronavirus in short has completely um, immobilized so much of our, our, our delivery from a retail point of view. What does the future look like? Um, well, I think we, we've gathered already that online shopping is going to be the new norm. Um, until people can be confident being back out and, and enjoying that, that shopping experience, online is going to be prevalent. Um, transportation and warehousing are going to be front and centre. So traditionally, you know, almost uh, the, the lesser considered um, of the supply chain functions, how we manage our transportation, how we manage our capacity for warehousing is going to be ever more important as we focus on direct consumer models. Dark stores are going to become much more uh, prevalent uh, where customers can confidently, um, safely and securely uh, pick up their, their click and collect orders. We're seeing stores transformed. So not so people facing, but you know, uh, that, that, that click and collect option. Customer demands or expectations are escalating. You know, the, the, the click effect where you want, um, you want product variety and, and instantaneous delivery almost, uh, that's growing. Meanwhile, COVID see, has seen uh, supply chains just shrink and product availability become a real concern. Um, so we've got customer demands escalating, but the ability of the supply chains to provide really struggling. So we need to look at how we can deliver the product availability, the product, uh, product choice at a convenient time and place for, for the customers. We're changing, we're, uh, COVID really saw us reprioritize uh, and think about um, you know, discretionary versus non-discretionary categories. Yes, that's not going to be a, a long-term um, issue as we, we start to, to, to normalize again. Um, but definitely COVID saw us, us reprioritize and those discretionary categories and organizations and firms involved become, became transformed. You know, we saw real innovation take place as you've got the, you know, the Hermes and the, uh, you know, the, the, the high-end um, high designers take to, to making face masks and the like. So we saw real innovation and I think that will continue. Um, it's got to continue as we, as we look to create a much more agile um, customer focused supply chain system moving forward. Uh, we've touched on it again. Um, I think Jonathan and Devon both mentioned this idea of, you know, the localization, local opportunity, you know, never, never risk a good, um, never, um, what's the word, never, never waste a good crisis. We saw many local retailers and, uh, you know, local firms really benefit from the, from the, the customer preference to, to buy, to buy local and to support local. There's also the, uh, the opportunity for SMEs and, and Devon, uh, you know, as well, that, that, the ability or the agility that comes with being much smaller and um, flexible and agile in your processes and your people is 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 undoubtedly um, is undoubtedly a good thing. So what what's what's success going to look like for retail moving forward? I think you know we, we really have to to revisit the you know to revisit the, the old pillars of, of agility and flexibility and supply chains. We talk about them, but what does it mean for retail moving forward? Yes. Short term, it's going to be an emphasis on, on cash management uh, for liquidity and, and solvency. But soon after, we really need to get down to, to the basics here on what resilience means and how we can craft resilience through thinking about our agility and our flexibility. The localization, you know, how can we reorganize our, our production? How can we reorganize our, our manufacturing? How can we bring our, our, um, our procurement back to, to shore um, to have that quick response? 
how can we work much, much more collaboratively? We talk about collaboration and uh, partnerships a lot in supply chain, but in practice, we're not necessarily so good at doing it in crisis events and um, at, at times of crisis. But there's a real opportunity here for actively seeking partnerships, um, not only within your own value chain, but beyond, um, you know, you, you share cost, you share risk. Um, you could start to think about models where, you know, department stores are offering in store uh, pickup services to e-commerce companies and, and likewise e-commerce offering online order fulfillment for department stores. We could see a emerging of industrial, um, the industrial sector and retail with the, the focus much more on distribution, distribution and warehousing and that, um, fulfillment capabilities and innovation around fulfillment surely that calls for some greater collaboration between uh, the industrial sector and uh, and retail procurement moving away from these sole sourcing models and looking towards a more localized procurement and building in capacity building in redundancy we're very anti um, redundancy often uh, from a supply chain point of view because it, it costs and you know the stock, the storing of inventory, for example. But we need to think a little bit more strategically and critically about what inventory we should be storing as retailers and what are what what's going to be um, you know what's going to be the the value add for customers in that regard. And then starting to think about flexibility. You know, technology is is undoubtedly going to pave the way here, and if anything. COVID has, um, has accelerated the, the focus on automation on end-to-end -end, uh, delivery to customers. Um, you know, we see it happen in grocery, um, and I, I think it's, it's just a matter of time before we see that complete automated end-to-end -end, um, customer, delivery, uh, customer delivery process just across so many other parts of, of retail. Um, the potential of RFID here um, in terms of adding visibility and transparency, I think is, 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 is critical. Flexibility, um, COVID was a great, um, a great lesson for, for building flexibility into our, into our retail and into our processes, looking at flexible staffing, flexible um, site facility. I think that that's just, it, it, that's gonna be here to stay. Um, you know, we need to think about organizing our processes in a much less rigid manner so that we can we can change and adapt to what is a very dynamic and uncertain um, marketplace going forward um, thinking more critically about product variety um, you know the, the the sheer number of SKUs that many retailers are offering how sustainable is that um, does that lend itself to the to the online um, delivery system and and from a from an order management and processing point of view is it is it is it sensible um, I think fulfillment is is going to be is going to be central here as we start to look at the localization coupled with the fact that customers want much more speedy instantaneous um, you know delivery options how we consider fulfillment and how we you know how we innovate around that is is is, is certainly a, a should be a focus of attention flexible logistics looking at looking to our 3pl partners looking to flexible warehousing and the capacity associated. Mm -hmm certainly is 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 has to be a has to be a focus for supply chain systems going forward you know and i uh, i think it's to to kind of circle back round on you know the the drawing the they're putting the head in the sand around all this and not re not re not retracing the old mistakes i think we have to decide to either you know use covid to to draw that line in the sand and to to change what we do how we do it and how we deliver to the customers or we will find ourselves in this position again Thanks a lot, uh, Sinead. I mean, uh, thanks a lot for this very comprehensive uh, presentation on, on the, the the supply chain implication of of this um, of this crisis. 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to bridge the gap between or bridge uh, 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 from what you've said to, to what the previous speakers have said and maybe ask a question that you, you may answer or that like the other speakers might uh, jump on. Basically from what you said, um, uh, uh, Sinead, um, and from the consumer behavior points that were made by both Jonathan and Devon earlier, seems like there's going to be two categories of ultra winner, if you want. On one hand, uh, you have the local, okay, so local shop with local maybe supply chain, buying Irish, you know, buying like from your own national, national uh, country, and, and those type of, of uh, consumer behavior, and so with a mini reduced supply chain. And on the other hand, you seem to have like a very uh, online, globalized, hyper-globalized supply chains in the likes of Amazon, where you might buy from Amazon and with a supplier that is, uh, and a seller, sorry, not even a supplier, a seller that is actually uh, uh, located in, in Germany and who himself may, you know, uh, get his parts and uh, to, for his product from, from elsewhere and you get it delivered to your house. So in other words, from a supply chain point of view, you have a hyper-globalized, hyper-extended supply chain that goes from the very producer that might be in China or elsewhere to the retailer that who might be in Germany to your doorsteps where the delivery is being made. So you've got this contradictory movement and what's left in the middle, and that comes back to one of the questions that were asked by the, the, uh, the attendee, is the national retailer, a non-online national retailer. Uh, that may be finding himself like uh, pulling away from, from those, uh, you know, national retailer maybe located in the city center, okay, to mm. some of the point that you guys have made. I come back to, so I'd like to welcome your thought on this. And the follow-up question is, what's going to happen to the likes of a, a typical retailer like this, which would be uh, pennies, for example? Uh, what do they, you think of? Uh, how they're going to survive. They don't have an online presence. We know they bounce back quite heavily on the first few days um, after the, 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 the post-confinement phase, but uh, yeah. hold on all of this. I think to touch on the first part of that, I think we'll see a massive in, uh, surge in, in in online presence across those retailers so that they, they will have, they will, there will be a capability development probably very quickly and reactively to this COVID and awareness that customer, customer expectations are changing and that they, they, they do expect to have some type of online um, channel through which they can procure um, services or uh, product. You know, so many, um, so even services that we didn't, didn't assume to be, uh, to lend themselves to this, this online delivery have adjusted. And I think it, it, you, will, you, will, you, would risk, um, you would risk a certain demise if, if you weren't adapting and responding to this online need. So I think across the board that we will see, we will see online provision. Um, uh, you know, from counselling services to my sister's a dietitian, and, you know, she, she's got, they've got very terribly creative with, um, with, with dealing with patients in a, in, a, in a very remote way. So I think this, is, this will be the new, the new normal. In terms of pennies, um, you know, I, you know I, I guess on one hand, I'm surprised that they, they haven't tried to, 
I guess the sheer the sheer size and the the number of SKUs that they do run. But I would imagine going forward that there will be an online there will there will be an online uh, presence there. You know, we we I've used Zara case study quite a lot in my in my class, and you know, traditionally Zara was not um, considered to be a, a retailer that could have an online presence due to their business model, but they have adapted and it, it's excellent. This was pre-COVID, and um, mm. so it's I, I think it to discount the online. Um, the online model would be um, would be a shame for pennies. I think there's opportunity to even run a more um, a more focused uh, for more focused product lines, but I guess time will tell. Is is there the, the um, is there the opportunity maybe and Devon maybe or, or Jonathan might pick on this? Do you think like for a shop like pennies, there's an opportunity to partner like someone like Buy Me, but for uh, for uh, for non food retail where you know, an entity, a platform takes on this customer interface delivery aspect and leave the, the shops being where they are with the, with the local. Well, I mean, that, that did happen. I mean, uh, Primark did actually, Penny uh, did, did um, experiment with ASOS uh, about right. uh, 10 years ago now, and they gave up the experiment, you know. So I think there was, there was a trial at one point. I think you can now still buy secondhand uh, clothing from Primark online at... Um, at ASOS, but uh, yeah, I think they gave it up because they didn't see the demand at the time. Okay. Um, I think, I think it could, it could, well, it could, but it I think, could, I think restart yeah, things have changed. Yeah. 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 Probably more Maybe. mature now. Yeah. Add to that, I think you know, online and delivery is is uh, is often confused and all, all often conflated as one thing. Um, mm. I think seen particularly in the last um, five years, in when it comes to food retail, and you can say that this is for for the verticals as well, is the resegmentation. So you have your meal kit deliveries, which are like some Gustos, HelloFresh, Blue Aprons. You know, they're typically turnaround times about five days. It's very planned, it's very scheduled. Then you have your traditional online grocery, which is next day, two or three day out. Um, and then you have same day. And, and they are ultimately different channels, different customer missions and have vastly different economics. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one of the things when it comes to, and we've been often asked like, oh, would you not take Primark online? Or would you not do, you know, McDonald's before Uber had started to do McDonald's and realistically, and um, you have to be quite careful because what has been, uh, when it comes to same day delivery, one of the biggest mistakes that's been made is that there are a lot of platforms that have tried to be everything to everyone, building very generic technology stacks, very generic uh, infrastructure, and they ultimately end up being no, nothing to no one. And when it comes to grocery, grocery has a lot of complexity and nuance. And you know, we're entirely grocery focused. We only, we're only building technology and data infrastructures for grocery as a category because it has a lot of complexities like chill chain, for example. Um, and so when you start to mix different categories in, you can end up really kind of doing yourself a, a misjustice because you're, you're just not set up to be excellent at one thing. Um, and I think these, these are kind of the interesting areas. And the other side is the, is the demand. Like, do people need a, a pair of tights from pennies delivered in an hour? I'm not, I'm not quite sure if the demand is high enough for it. Um, and level of demand within day, similar to the electricity network, network, is quite a fundamental component of how you get different networks and different channels to operate efficiently. Um, grocery is a bell curve like electricity and um, it takes off in the morning peaks in the afternoon and even early evening and then cools down whereas hot food delivery for example is a batman problem where it goes flat lunch flat dinner um, and that's a very a very inefficient demand curve uh, for 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 decentralized uh, distribution networks so it really depends on on the on the the channel it depends on the complexities and ultimately then the technology infrastructure you want to design to do that and um, but I, I think shared infrastructures no matter what sort of vertical or, or sector you're in and um, shared infrastructure is the only way to make it to make it uh, commercially viable.
Okay, thanks a lot. Um, there was um, there was actually a kind of a, a, a follow up questions in a way. Uh, uh, Jonathan, you mentioned secondhand uh, retail. Um, there was one question specifically on oh, yeah. from, from Tara. Yeah, see that. Yeah, the, how do you think it's going to be affected? You know, the, such as uh, vintage and flea yeah. markets. And I mean, there's a lot of there's been I, a lot of talk about like moving away from this globalized economy. Yeah, and in a way, like you know, secondhand and being more uh, aware of sustainability of our consumption yeah. is something yeah. that has been talked about in this. Uh, in this crisis and also, but we know that this is currently happening in small, local, crowded shops. So what's yeah. your take on, on, on Yeah, I, mean, I think you have, you have, you have two kind of uh, countervailing forces, don't you? As you say, you have uh, you know, a, a, a refreshed move towards sustainability. So growth in secondhand uh, thrift shops and so on. But at the same time, many of these, these are actually in pretty undesirable sort of yeah. buildings in terms of uh, social distancing and so on. So they're actually not very viable. I mean, we've got, a, for example, a Red Cross shop in Woodstock, which is about a mile from me. And uh, they're only allowing two people in there at a time because uh, you know, it's not a big enough store to get, get people in. And they're overwhelmed with, uh, with, with product that they have to actually quarantine before they can put it on the shelves. You know? <laughs> so that, there's, there's a short-term challenge there, you know? but there's a medium to long-term opportunity, I think. The other aspect, I suppose, is, is the size of these things, as you say, you know, craft fairs, flea markets often tend to be open air as well. So that's that's a much more desirable kind of place to be able to do that kind of thing in uh, open food markets as well. have, have done pretty well um, over the, the lockdown period in the UK because they're seen by shoppers <laughs> as being inherently kind of safer to, to be there uh, than, than, than in some kind of enclosed space. Um, but I, I do think that that the lockdown has made us uh, as societies and cultures appreciate more some of the sustainability and environmental impact of our previous activities and to the extent that that will reflect in our buying behaviors we'll see that uh, as an opportunity for for, for charity and second hand so business. something positive yeah yeah, yeah. um okay uh, listen i'm i'm uh, I, I we've done very well and the the, the seminar was uh, well attended we, with more than uh, 50 uh, people on the other side that we're not seeing but we are saying hello to you uh, and uh, uh, so i just i'm conscious of the time and as i see that the murk start to drop as we go past 12 o'clock um, I would like to maybe conclude if maybe ask like every single one of you uh, member of the panel if you have like one word to say uh, that you'd like to uh, uh, you know to summarize your thought about this COVID-19 uh, crisis and, and the implication on retail but literally in, in a couple of minutes uh, what is the number one um, insight that you were obviously still unfolding that you're taking from this crisis, from uh, looking at like your area of expertise, what has fundamentally changed, uh, and what do you think is is the number one lesson to remember from this uh, unfolding crisis? Who, do, who wants to start with this? Not 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 so easy question to answer. Uh, Shall I kick off? I mean, I, okay. The, the, thing, the thing that struck me is 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 the the uh, how creative and innovative. Uh, we've seen businesses, uh, the best businesses respond to this crisis, not from the top necessarily either, often from the teams on the shop floor or you know, the local retailer. Uh, bright ideas have, have more opportunities to prosper now than they ever had. And although you know, times are tough financially, I think, uh, in terms of just cash flow and keeping the business afloat, uh, the, the resources of, of, of the retailer and those people who are becoming retailers to, to invent the future uh, uh, never ceases to uh, uplift me, I suppose. Uh, 
Very good. Who wants to uh, take on and follow up? Thank you. That I think that's a very good point. Like the agility and the innovation that uh, people have demonstrated. I agree. I think the the we are in general a species that can adapt very quickly and and are actually more resilient than we give ourselves credit for in general and and in the context of retail in particular. Um, Shanae, do you want to you want to go ahead? Yeah, I, I think you know, and as much I probably as as much as I probably seemed quite critical of the of the response, I think you know many retailers and and many sectors will look back with a degree of uh, of pride at how they've how they've managed to to muster response to what you know really have has largely been an un, unprecedented disaster and um, you know so I think that yes in agreeing with with Jonathan there's a lot to be a lot to be positive about here um, but I think let's just not let's not forget um, and let's really take fragility um, serious and look at our vulnerabilities and mm. and maybe try to to Greedy is not the right word, but you know, tr let's try to let's try to focus on the, on the weak points and, and not try to spread ourselves too thin going forward. Mm. So, so limited, not not focusing on limiting the cost and uh, and yeah. having the most uh, effective supply chain, but maybe a supply chain that is slightly more resilient and than 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 and considered. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you, uh, Sinead. And Devon, you want to say a, a small uh, conclusion? Sure. Um, I think. No matter what industry you're in or what sector you're in, I think everyone needs to really give some serious thought to incentivization. Um, having spent some time now in the FMCG industry, for example, what I have seen is that uh, the industry as a whole is typically publicly traded businesses. Um, and the executive remuneration strategy in the sector is very much focused on the next three months, the next quarter. What's the number? Am I going to hit the number? And all my decisions are based on the next three months. I really think that the trajectory at which our market, our economies, our sectors are all now on, given this you know kind of fundamental shift in the in the in the landscape beneath our feet, and um, we really need to th start looking more long term. And I think to to Sinead's point, I think Sinead has made some really really insightful comments around the challenges that that supply chain have as a, as a whole. And I can't help but think it's due to the, to the short-term incentivization that many of our sectors have built um, to, to fundamentally deal with longer-term challenges and not, not thinking exponentially, they're thinking very linearly. Uh, and realistically, the world in which we're around, whether it's been transformed by a, a virus or technology, uh, the world that we live in is not linear. Um, and so why should our perspectives? Okay, so uh, long-term uh, long consequences, agility, innovation, and sustainability uh, are the, some of the key message that we, and key insight that we can take from this crisis in a way what you are all saying, even though this crisis is unprecedented and, uh, and uh, was not necessarily taken as a potential risk, um, it, was, uh, it is increasing trends that we've already seen in terms of consumer habits and technology uh, and, and, uh, and the makeup of, of uh, of various uh, of the retail industry. Um, so, uh, without further ado, I will uh, thank you all, uh, the, the or, or panel discussant, for uh, coming here today and sharing your insight. I am extremely grateful that you took the time to uh, uh, come and, and, and share your expertise. Uh, this was the very last uh, webinar of uh, the Trinity uh, Research, uh, Research Centers in Social Science. So 
I, I think we, um, I'm very proud that I have uh, hosted it with uh, such uh, uh, great guests and uh, I hope you have enjoyed it. Um, we will uh, probably see each other, uh, hopefully physically, uh, in, in, the, in the future. And um, yeah, I want to uh, thank everybody for attending and uh, again, thanks to the panelists for sharing their thoughts. Thank you very much. And hopefully, uh, I would like to thank Maeve as well for organizing this particular uh, and being in the background, making sure everything was, uh, was okay. Okay, so thank you very much, everyone, and um, hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Laurent. Thank you. Thanks. You guys a lot. Thank you. That was great.